0: Are you ready for another rant? Welcome back to Rollins Rant and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Damien Brown. Uh, Damien is a former professional rugby union player who is now an extreme adventurer who's managed to do some truly insane or inspiring feats, depending on your perspective over the last several years. But with all this said, Damien, firstly, thanks obviously for coming on the show, but how are you finding life away from the ocean right now? Um, Thanks for having me, Richie. Uh,
1: Yeah, good. But, you know, um, in terms of a transition, it doesn't take half as long uh, to, I don't know if this is a personal thing or this is just the way it is with people, but I find I adapt very, very quickly back into kind of everyday existence. Um, First two days were a bit head spinning, just off the boat. I was there, I was present, I was um, cordial and polite, you know, when uh, dealing with people, but I was missing something, like there was just this lack of connection, I think particularly, like, emotionally. Um, but that passed after about 48 hours, and then it was very much just back into normal stuff, you know, just normal existence, the way you'd be, the way you'd feel, the way you do, the way you act. So, um, and since then, okay, you know, a lot of stuff has come off the back of uh, the North Atlantic row. So um been just trying to, uh, I suppose, kind of roll with that a little bit and make the most of the opportunity so life has been a little bit um different a little bit hectic um you know lots immediately the first kind of 10 days lots of media stuff and subsequently um um yeah you know so ocean rowing like and, and extreme adventures generally nobody is going to pay you to do it in fact you have to go and try and you know bring in uh funding and make partnerships and all that sort of stuff so this is my opportunity now to try and kind of uh monetize uh and uh, make some money off the back of um what i went through and what i um achieved so yeah I've been just trying to you know uh maximize that and uh I've been doing a lot of speaking and and uh, a few other things you know working on the documentary we did a show uh, like a live production uh of the story of the uh, expedition so it's been exciting and there's been loads of kind of new stuff happening and, and that's always obviously very interesting and um yeah so um so a long kind of answer to your question, but uh,
0: yeah, all good. Better to be too detailed than give too little, so I'm all <laughs> right. for it, don't worry. But before I suppose we focus on what you alluded to there, the, the big row and the challenges you've faced over the last few years, I always find it interesting, like I, I see yourself now, you're you know, a man with a family who's achieved a lot, but whether it's in the profession of rugby or as you said on the adventurer side of life but rewind back to when Damien was a teenager a kid growing up like what did that really look like for you was like what was your family life like what were you like as a kid were you driven were you like a bit like me a complete messer that just didn't want to get near <laughs> a book or like how did that really look like for you kind of indifferent
1: in school, you know, not, didn't rebel at any point against uh family environment or school environment, but like also didn't, wasn't excelling, wasn't uh, motivated particularly. Uh, there was a couple of subjects that um, I was interested in, but that was more because of the teachers, you know, and, and their, um, level of passion i think for what they did so you know very average student um my focus in school was rugby (laughs) i think this is, you know a lot of people who um i suppose go into professional sport that's often the way right where you know where your focus is your energy goes so um i would train basically you know we're all i was in a school called the bish in Galway. So right in the city center. And when all my friends would go uptown, uh, during lunchtime, you know, to get something to eat or whatever, I'd go to the gym. Uh, and that was pretty, you know, standard behavior for a couple of years for me. You know, I was very, um, I was very driven within rugby and trying to be a better rugby player. Um, um, it was kind of only till I was around, you know, I was that, Passion, I suppose that ignition of that interest came during the ninety five World Cup, and seeing um, the All Blacks, and particularly Joan Lomu, like just you know destroy every, yeah. particularly every Northern Hemisphere rugby player there was, um, uh, and and just like been mesmerised by him and them. I uh, like I could still name that team for you, so that's where that kind of started, and then you know through my own exploration of the sport. Um, uh yeah very kind of not that I thought like this would be a career rent, and just love the sport and what it gave me and very much wanted to do my best within that sport and you know at the time I was I'm my club was Gowegians um uh and uh had some you know decent success you know so there was players there like eric elwood who had played for ireland so like there was people to there was a team to strive to um break into and then there was players there um from very very similar backgrounds to me like eric who um had achieved really high things in the sports so those people there try and emulate so that was very much my um my focus and then um Yeah, lucky enough then around the age of uh, just out of school, 18, 19. So I was kind of fast-tracked into the system. Now, it's not like it is now, right, where um, there's academies and they are, like, very, very difficult to get into. Really, the player depth was very shallow, because the game had only been pro four years at this, three or four years at this point. So, I was kind of fast-tracked in. Uh, I hadn't even done my leaving cert, and I had done a couple of training sessions with the Connock senior team, because I was just, I was massive, just massive, you know, like, six foot six basically. Can't have been far off, 20 stone, like, when I was 17 so they were like oh, gee like we don't get these types of genetics i suppose or at least statures um, often in ireland so they were like just throw him in and see how he gets on <clears throat> so um i signed my first contract when i was uh just turned 19 and um yeah and that was the start of that journey
0: yeah and you kind of alluded to it there that it's not as kind of pristine and roadmap for you as it is now in modern day technology if you want to call it that when it comes to the rugby academies and whatnot but you obviously went on to have a a very successful career and that you know went on for several years and one thing I want to focus on because I have a lot of friends who currently play professional rugby maybe a few of them who are approaching the end of their careers or are at that stage where maybe the next contract isn't as guaranteed as it was when they were 21 22 sure And you've come out the other side of it, but if you can maybe take me back to those few weeks of post-retirement for you, like did you struggle with that transition? We've had people on here before who said they did, they didn't. You've obviously now established yourself and you've got plenty of goals and plenty of very ambitious and tough things to deal with on your plate, so that keeps you busy, I'm sure. But at that time, did you feel a bit lost or were you fully prepared to, you know, Go on this adventure that you are on now i think it was about seven years roughly
1: before i retired that um i kind of made the uh, conscious decision that what i was going to do was um uh take on some um feats some endeavors that um really drew me to them um And uh, I started to kind of plan there and then. Now, that was all internal um, conversation. Like, I never aired that to anybody because I didn't see the point. um, All you're going to get when you start, if you're, you know, whatever, 30 years old and you're coming to the end of your rugby career, at least as far as I was concerned, all I'm going to get is kind of resistance and questioning and I'm not really too bothered like what anyone thinks about it you know I just I knew that was the path for me it was a path that was going to help me continue to explore myself physically and mentally which gave me a lot of uh, rich rewards uh, internally particularly in terms of learning and growth fulfillment so um Throughout my rugby career, I'd always taken great responsibility for my strength and conditioning training and and my preparation and performance. Uh, I didn't need to be pushed at all, you know. In fact, I probably had to be held back a lot because um, I just wanted to work and do and train and get better. So throughout that kind with that mindset, I suppose um, I, I I'd go and I'd research what other people are doing in in different fields and. Um, you know, as kind of broad on the spectrum as ultra running and what those guys are doing mentally to kind of endure and uh, bodybuilding and what those guys are doing to put on as much, you know, lean muscle mass as possible. So if I felt I could use it to be a better rugby player, I would. And throughout that research, I just discovered some things like the mountain, the sabla, and that people rode across oceans. And I was like, you know, the minute I found out about these things, I was like, I'm going to do that someday. So So that was very much uh, the plan. Um, And I knew that nobody was going to, there's nobody going to pay you to um, be an extreme adventurer. You know, you're going to come out of this environment that you're very comfortable in uh, and you're going to uh, try and do these things. Well, how does, what does that look like? How are you going to do that? You're going to have to have, you know, a little bit of um, reserves and resources behind you. So I just started saving. That kind of from about seven years out, just started saving to with that kind of you know hazy outlook that it's possibly you're gonna to have to self fund a lot of these things um i I also realized that you know I would try at least to have them um to in some way try and fund them, but that would be you know tough work as it as as it turns out. So all that meant that uh, i was pretty clear on where i wanted to go to um and uh there's like so much so that the like not long after the bloody week i retired or the, the last season at least of my career i was i was playing in Ina in france which is not far from uh chamonix so like i i literally drove up to um, Mount, um Chamonix to climb Mont Blanc, like about a week after I retired, you know, I was kind of <laughs> living in its shadow a little bit. And I, I, you know, spent a bit of time in Chamonix, just, on, you know, days off and that sort of stuff. So it was very much something I wanted to do. And, and I had plans then subsequently after that. Now, when you come out of a sport like professional rugby, even if you have like really purposeful direction like I did, It's a big exposure. Like you're gone from the safety of this environment, that uh, literally wipes your arse for you if you ask them to, (laughs) to, um, to uh, on your own. Now Everton is your responsibility or whatever you want to achieve, at least is it's up to you. Like nobody's doing it for you anymore. Like nobody's kind of managing certain parts of that process to kind of give you as much space and, um, and time to focus on what makes you really good at rugby, right? That's all gone anymore. So it is, I noticed despite my kind of, um, uh, clarity and comfort in where I wanted to go. I noticed that there was times I like um, uh, I was pulled back. I was kind of pining back for that environment, of professional rugby, and the kind of the protection of it. You know, um, the other thing that I think uh, really helped me in the transition out of pro sport was acceptance of the fact i would never fill the hole it gave me like unless i was going to go into some sort of sport that was similarly primal and confrontational like mma or boxing or something like that 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 physical kind of outlet that rugby gave that warrior kind of sport that was gone um and i had to accept that i missed that like there's nothing there's nothing really about the sport that i miss apart from that you know the the physical confrontation the 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 simple reality of those moments like who's trained harder here you know when you when you come into contact when you're carrying a ball or you're tackling a guy like who's trained harder here like who's put in more work to win this collision and that that beautiful moment of reality that's kind of, that's inaccessible unless you play a sport like that or, you know, like I said, some other sports. And I, I had no interest in getting punched in the face for, you know, the next 10, 20 years. So I was like, um, yeah, that was, those those other sports were never an option for me. so So that acceptance helped a lot as well.
0: I could imagine so, yeah. Not everyone fancies getting punched in the face by 265-pounders on a weekly (laughs) basis, yeah. (laughs) Especially
1: after a life in rugby, right? You're like, oh, listen,
0: you know, moving on from that now. Exactly, yeah. And you do transition, and I kind of alluded to it there, the transition (laughs) from rugby to outside of it. And then, as you're saying, like even when you were in school to moving into the rugby Uh, side of things but how did you cope with your body because as you said you've you've prided yourself on the the physical side of it you were one of those that probably haunted me back in my school days those huge (laughs) barbarian types at the age of like 16 that were causing mayhem on pitches but naturally you've got a big frame when you think of as you alluded to as well the sahara deserts ultramarathon you completed some of the mountains you've climbed like as you said even the rows as well those are efforts that traditionally well maybe not so much the row but like long endurance type thing mm-hmm. is not really it's not really compatible with these 120 kilo type people because they tend mm-hmm. to break down or their body would break down too much muscle mass etc etc but did you have to make any conscious or physical decisions when you left rugby, were you like, right, I need to lose some weight or I need to train a different way? Do I need to build up a certain cardio based aspect of my life? Or how did that look for you? Yeah. Um
1: so I was obsessed with training, like um and not just training for the sake of training. I wanted to know why. Why am I doing this? Why am I training that way throughout my rugby career? So, you know, I had pretty um, strong relationships with a lot of my S coaches, uh, because of that kind of passion for what I was doing. And I was always kind of, as I mentioned, um, reading and researching myself, um, to have the information that I could, um, direct my training to get more out of my body. So that gave me this like really valuable base of knowledge that when I, um, came out of pro rugby I was uh armed with to approach this next step this extreme adventure so um I, I was able to kind of like I I design all my own training programs and all that off the back of you know that those years researching and continued <coughs> research to be better and that kind of um you know gave me a in a kind of 360 look um, at how to um, program for my best interests. Like, so what I'm trying to say there is that most of the time um, any, you know, when you're designing programs of people, they basically have them, you know, already set in stone and they just do a few tweaks here and there uh that is very limiting you know so what I was able to do I was able to I had all this knowledge of you know how my body works what it feels like what it um, responds best to what adapts best to what doesn't work for it and um, and then the kind of technical I suppose um, at least a, a good footing in the technical aspect of how you should prepare your body for ultra endurance or you know more kind of power endurance stuff so having that kind of 360 view I was really able to direct my programming and the the clearest I am um, picture of that I can give you was when I took on the Mountain de Sable, which was the world's toughest well, sorry. it's known as the world's toughest foot It's it's not, but that's their kind of they got in there with a great marketing thing right at the end. But it's yeah. you know, <laughs> that's not to say it's not um arduous and difficult and challenging. It's still two hundred and fifty seven kilometers across the Sahara Desert, um, self supported over six days. So you know and i was come as you said i was coming out of rugby uh roughly weighing well when i finished rugby i was probably 125 126 kilos but i i took 6 months off um to travel. Um, and when I came back from that, I, I'd lost quite a lot of weight because I was in like places like Central Asia, where like protein is at absolute premium, like, you know, so I was, <laughs> I was just, I was fading away basically as I went along. meat so meathead's pretty,
0: worst nightmare.
1: What's that? A meathead's worst nightmare. It's yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get a, you know, a little scrap of mutton as your protein source, which is like, you know, hardly a, a mouthful. <laughs> um but that's just the way yeah it went and, and that was cool because like you know i um i had finished with a knee injury and um i the more weight i lost the more it helped the pain of that you know and, and obviously the fact i wasn't getting the shit kicked out of me every week yeah so um yeah. So when I got back into, so I, I got back to Ireland and then I was like, right, the Ma- Martin de Sable is seven months away. Now I haven't run in nearly 18, mm, 16 months at this stage through my last rugby season. And then that seven, six months I took to travel. Um, so the first training session I did for a 257 kilometer uh, ultramarathon in the Sahara Desert was little 25 meter jogs between up on the GA pitch here in in renmore and galway and um i built up from there you know because i was testing my knee testimony and then when i got to a point where i felt geez do you know what it's it's actually not too bad i can um up the kind of workload volume intensity of training but that by the end of that six months um the the, the this training session that held the longest um, va- longest run, if you want, longest interval, um, so my peak training session before I was to fly to Morocco and the Sahara, uh, and the longest I ran in that was two kilometers without stopping. Wow. Um, and, and that's because um, I, the, 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 the question you have to ask yourself is, what physical and mental state do I need to be in when I step onto the start line, when I step onto the dock, when I step off the plane onto a mountain to help me achieve what I want to achieve? Um, if I had done down the classic kind of marathon, marathon program, the kind of, you know, the copy and paste program that everyone gets, I would have destroyed my body like Imagine yeah. um, just the the plodding and the volume and the the kind of arduous nature of that. Like uh, my joints are already compromised mm-hmm. from rugby, so they would have been just torn to shreds. And and I would have, I probably wouldn't have even got to the start line. And if I got to the start line, I would have got there in a state that would have um, uh, compromised me achieving what I want to achieve. I probably would have broke down in the middle of the thing, you know, in the middle of the um, endeavor and the event. So uh it was clear to me that I run at a much um uh or the knowledge I had was I run much better at a faster pace. So it it's less arduous on my joints because I'm not like plodding along, you know. Uh, I'm much smoother. So I just built my volume into my trainings through intervals, uh and the intervals kind of spans from that start from those 25 meters up and, you know, over time, 200, 400, 600, 800 meter intervals. And I just run intervals at a much faster pace, but do lots of them. You know, So I build my volume that way and and the, the, the longest I ran in any of those intervals was a 2K without stopping. So you just have to be really smart in how you approach these things and the more knowledge, obviously, you have of how to train for certain things and then the knowledge you have about how you react and adapt to certain training stimuli and you kind of try and mesh things together and program them forward.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I was kind of expecting the usual... Marathon prep out of you, but the fact there was only 2k is I could actually understand the logic coming from you. Yeah, I only um, actually and I only, um, sorry, but I only
1: uh ran once every nine days and I did a lot of off heat conditioning as well. And a lot of always the the key to any physical endeavor is strength, uh, so a lot of strength training, a lot of resistance training, uh, even for mountains, same thing. Um you know when I, i'm actually trying to lose as much mass as i can because the more mass i have the more oxygen i need and the higher i go the less there is so it's not conducive right so so i need as le- little mass as possible so even though that's my outlook i uh, sorry that's my um goal i'm still doing strength training uh, i'm just where the real um a uh, piece of that puzzle comes in is in diet so i might be doing strength training and sending that stimuli and actually getting stronger but i'm still i'm dropping mass because i'm eating so little calories
0: okay the classic summer cut, in other words <laughs> what we used to call it <laughs> probably not as detailed but uh, the principle remains the same exactly. and with the kind of sahara adventure i had actually ryan sanders on Several years ago, he's another ultramarathon runner who competed in that, and then some other jungle runs. It's it's truly mm. mental when you really hear about some of the self sustainable issues you can run into on on races like that. But moving towards the other adventures or challenges, I'd like to call them when it comes to like the <laughs> five thousand kilometer row across the Atlantic or your most recent one going from New York to Galway when did the whole okay let's start rowing come into the conversation like was it something that you kind of thought of this actually suits me the taller you are the more better you are at rowing I'm only about five nine so me on the rowing machine it's not great mm-hmm. it looks like a weird t-rex trying to do stuff when my <laughs> six foot four friends do it in twice twice as quick a time but how did you or why did you kind of transfer your your efforts over towards, a, you know, a, an ocean row?
1: We used to do a lot of off conditioning in, um, uh, particularly in Northampton and um, Leinster on the ergometer, the indoor row machine. And uh, there was a guy in Northampton who'd done a bit of rowing um, and oh, we used, we used we used to be on those machines a lot. And uh, he was saying, jeez, your numbers are really good. Like, you know, you should be probably rowing, not playing rugby. <laughs> and um <clears throat> stuck with me. And I also got a lot from it, uh, that machine. You know, I got a lot of crossover into performance. Like, got a lot of crossover into uh, learning to control my mind because it's been in, in incredibly... Um, efficient and proficient machine at testing you mentally as long as as well as physically because and the reason for that is because it well while you're um body does fatigue it never fatigues to a level where you can't go any further because there's so many levers involved in the rowing action so despite the levels of physical fatigue that come and uh, the lactic acid that can build up you can still perform uh, and still output you can still produce output so that means you just have to control your mind in those spaces like to to kind of um, stop the effects of that physical um, fatigue and uh, duress on your mind so it's unbelievable at that so I used to get a lot from it um, in terms of the crossover into my rugby performance so one of the kind of goals I gave myself after rugby was to compete on that machine in like indoor championships and that so that's kind of where the I suppose introduction and love for rugby c sorry, not rugby rowing and indoor and came. And then back to the whole piece about researching uh, what people were doing. I read a book called The Crossing by um James Cracknell, who's a British Olympian, and Ben Fogel, who is a British kind of T V presenter slash adventurer. Um, when they rode The Atlantic in two thousand six. And, um, yeah, it was very much a case of oh, this is something I really want to do at some point in my life. So um, once I had the Martin de Sabler, um boxed off and I had a little bit of time to kind of let that whole thing sink in and process and convalesce a little bit, I was uh, I committed to the um, rowing solo across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands to Antigua in a, there's an annual race that happens called the (coughs) Talasco Atlantic Challenge on that same route. So it's kind of a really, really good entry level into ocean rowing because um, you have a bit of a support structure around you within the race. Uh, It's been going now for a number of years. So they're pretty, it's a good, you know, it is a strong support structure and they have good resources, not just around, You know all the shit you have to learn, which is you know significant. You know, I had no maritime experience. I've obviously had really no rowing experience apart from the indoor stuff, and uh, so there's a there's a hell of a mountain of information that you got to take in and try and assimilate. Like there's a whole new language around ocean rowing, or sorry, a whole new kind of maritime language stuff you have to try and you know um, figure out and decipher as well. So, so they help a lot with that. yeah, so then that's where it kind of came from, that uh, um, that goal, I
0: suppose, um, to take that on. Okay, I, I love how you mentioned it's an uh, entry-level uh, way of getting into ocean <laughs> rowing, because I, I just kind of think of the word entry-level as something you'd be worried about after you're leaving, as opposed to going thousands <laughs> of miles across an Atlantic Ocean or whatnot, but going forward into these challenges you've obviously had to develop as you said a, a pretty positive or pretty trusting relationship with your mind and i look at whether it's the marathon uh, you were doing in the sahara or whether it's some of these like as you said you attempted to climb mount everest as well and then like with these impressive rows as well <clears throat> and I know maybe for the most recent one, it wasn't by design, but you find yourself on your own for a very long period. And a lot of people now in modern day society, or whether it's even scientifically backed, I've read one or two books on it as well. Being on your own is something that a lot of people can struggle with. That's why, you know, social media, the internet, gaming, et cetera, mm-hmm. is a very influential part of most young people's lives these days. But, you seem, as you said, like you've got you've got family at home, you've got friends, you've come from a, a team-based profession, but you spend huge amounts of time on your own. And how do you find that, or do you even have any kind of advice or tips that has allowed you to be somewhat, I'm not trying to say proficient, but like you're comfortable being in your own skin, but more importantly, you're comfortable being on your own for very long periods just having your thoughts just having your reflection Mm. and whatever you can find it on how have you developed that and what's your relationship with that like
1: exposure exposure to um well exposure alongside an understanding that it's a very very healthy relationship to have in fact it's i mean i i I'll kind of say I I feel it's the most important relationship you have, the one with yourself and um, everything else benefits from that. So um, my how I kind of got to that place is a. The building, the connection with my body through my mind. So the mind and the body are linked, like interlinked through the nervous system. They are one and the same thing, right? Of course, we we separate the the common messaging around them is that they are separate entities, but they're they're really not. They're um they're linked through um they're, they're the same thing, the nervous system basically. So um so my uh path into uh, building a strong relationship with myself has been connecting my body, connecting with my body, you know, learning to pay attention to what is happening in that internal world. Now, I had a purposeful and I've always had purposeful endeavors uh, or purposeful and meaningful things within my life to help drive that um those actions right to you know to connect my uh with my body and what it does because firstly i had rugby so i was training for that all the time and now i have extreme adventures so it's most people are absolutely disconnected from their body you know um or at least from the um the, been able to pay attention to what is happening through the senses, sensation and perception, particularly, but also feelings and emotions. So um, that's been my path. You know, it started obviously very kind of um, simply. Uh, and then I made that connection with its importance to me. You know, Jen just simply felt. The feedback, the biofeedback from those experiences, and like, kind of on some level, knew it was really good and rich and healthy and rewarding. So I pushed and I pushed and I pushed further, and it's 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 kind of the essence of why I do what I do—to continually um, connect and deepen that relationship with myself. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's never—I've um, never felt anything but positive associations with it no matter how kind of um hard and extreme or uh even time where i've pushed into those things or even times where i've kind of failed within that um uh, path, you know, where I've set myself certain targets and training sessions and I've quit or I've, you know, broke down or I've stopped and it's been too hard for me. You know, even moments like that, the they have an opportunity, they hold an opportunity for me to learn and, um, and uh, rebound and hold myself accountable and use that information that I failed with to come back and give it a go again and dive into my body and push it harder and harder and you know stress my mind harder and harder so it's that's kind of been the journey for me just continually um, pushing into those edges of my capacities physically and therefore mentally um, and learning from those experiences and you know Deepening things like, you know, um, self-belief, self-respect, self-worth, my consciousness, uh, my knowledge, my wisdom and uh, my awareness, my self-awareness. I think that's probably the key one, you know, because it's kind of self-awareness is kind of the key to um, performing in those, in those edges, because the first thing that will happen when you get into that kind of, um, fragile, uh, the edge of your physical capacity is that the effects that has on your mind. So be it true pain or true discomfort is very much a weakening effect, a fragile effect is, you know, you want to stop, you want to quit. Now, that's a kind of creates this maelstrom in your mind, you know, of whatever um, panic or stress or overwhelm or um, discombobulation or um, chaos. You can only change that if you become aware of that um, state that you're experiencing. It's very difficult to become aware of that in the chaos. When, you know, that your what I call your first level thinking, it's the first voice that will show its face when you come into a state like that of discomfort or pain. And it'll just chatter away and it's incredibly loud and it just, you know, um, so it's hard to recognize that state and it's self-awareness that helps you recognize that state. And once you're aware, you can change it by uh, redirecting your mind or resetting your mind to something within your control. So like that's a beautiful kind of um, process to, firstly, know that you have that control in those states um, and, secondly, be able to employ, then um, reap the benefits of it. Uh, And the translation into everyday life is... um, is vast so yeah so i i've uh all of my kind of well as far as i kind of off the top of my head right now i would say like everything i have learned um in terms of connecting and uh improving my relationship myself has been been done through the physical prism to through my body by pushing my body to its kind of capacities, uh, at the time and, uh, and past them and, uh, and continually doing that.
0: Yeah. Well said, well said. <clears throat> and this kind of tees up the next question or the next topic I wanted to talk about nicely. And you've talked there about how you don't really separate the mind and the body. They're one thing. And up until what you've recently done, which for anyone who doesn't know, Damien's just come back from the small, mean task of rowing from New York City to Galway Bay. I wouldn't necessarily advise it for a summer holiday for anyone, but if you're up for it, give Damien a message. But you came up with this idea, and which was kind of a first for you. You decided to have a partner for this, and... His nickname is Gussie, and I just want to kind of ask you how did it or why did you feel like you know what obviously the the Rowan aspect helps when you've got someone else and you can sleep and you can rest and both give up the give out the same energy output, so to speak. Mm. but why did you feel like it was the time to team up with someone and rather than, as you said, control the controllables, uh, which mm. is your own mind, et etc, cetera, etc? Cetera, bring someone else into this journey and you know meet the challenge of rowing from new york to galway the first
1: thing with that challenge was that i wanted so it it had to be a step up you know it had to challenge me deeper than um the last ocean row so what did that look like well it, it had to be a different kind of body of water you know a different that would bring its own challenges deeper challenges harder challenges which the north atlantic west to east was you know undoubtedly going to do because it has basically no trade winds so it doesn't have this kind of um, uh, meteorological phenomenon like that kind of has these winds blowing consistently across the that Portion of the Atlantic. What it has is all these little microclimates where the wind one day can be kind of with you, and the next day can be into your nose. You know, so it's um, it's not consistent, and that throws up the challenge a, a, a much deeper challenge. Um, the second thing, so Everton, and, and there's a reason I want that to be harder, right? Because it's there that I'm going to have to kind of reach deep inside myself and find the where at all, find the energy, find the effort to overcome challenge. Like, so what is challenge? Like, it's when you find yourself, genuine challenge is when you find yourself in those moments of doubt, moments of fragility, moments of vulnerability, moments of insecurity, And then you got to have, well, what I'm aiming to have at least is the self-reliance to be able to fucking grab, reach inside myself, grab myself by the fucking chest and pull myself up, you know, and out of that. So that it has to have that and it would have that. The second thing, and and that's obviously learning and growth when you do that. Uh, And then the second thing I saw was um, that I wanted to put myself in a position of not just leading myself, but leading somebody else, leading a team, uh, and learn through that, you know, learn and grow through that um, responsibility and that um, position. So originally, I thought it would be my brother. I asked my brother, I really thought it like, again, you're thinking of things that are meaningful and my brother was a professional rugby player as well but there's kind of seven years between us so we never actually played with each other which is a bit of a regret of mine or we never even played against each other which I think is a regret of his Um, (laughs) (laughs) so um, I just thought it'd be an amazing thing to do talk about like life experiences and um, to do that together and I knew obviously that i he would be somebody who um i could rely on in in that situation and would put in the the necessary work to achieve what we want to achieve but uh he he ended up pulling out because his um just his personal circumstances new baby on the way all that sort of stuff you know so um so that's that was kind of the kind of package if you want um in terms of the reason behind choosing to not do it solo. Yeah. I really wanted that leadership position. Obviously I wanted the harder challenge of the North Atlantic and, and originally I just thought it'd be a really amazing thing to do with my brother. But then when he, when he um, pulled out, then there was a little bit of time before, you know, I I made the decision to um, ask Gussie if he would like to join me, a good friend of mine and, and his, yeah, his, story in itself was a big part of that where you know he had a workplace accident and he was paralyzed given 5% chance to ever regain any sensation below his waist you know so the, he went through a period of about 6 weeks where you know he was he he thought he'd never walk again he was you know he he was getting um aid to shit and piss like you know and then he went obviously through this amazing kind of he um, defied all the prognosis and went on this amazing journey to regather and regain his mobility sensation and mobility so I, I played it I mean I was kind of a spectator of that and pretty close spectator at times so you know again I, I see, during that I saw somebody with the kind of character and values that I felt I could rely on on the ocean that's why I asked him
0: yeah it'd be of all the boxes to take Gussie he sounded like a pretty a one candidate. Um, no disrespect to your brother obviously but No no you know, of course in terms in terms of uh, second second choices you're you're in good health there. And obviously you've you've talked a bit about kind of how you prepped for the training in the pa- in the past or the challenge in the past and one thing I'm sure that you didn't really prep for was I think it was like it was day 13 where because he had to be evacuated and that obviously changes the complexion of everything i can imagine and that's all i can do is imagine here but that's why i'm going to ask the following question but you talk about being in control being able to you know prepare your mind for certain situations when this presents itself to you where Know 50% of the workload, 50% of the conversation, 50% of X and Y is being taken off the boat. Um, And like, I only realized that in like maritime law, the nearest boat needs to come and basically save you. That shows nearly how primal slash dangerous it can be. But when Gussie is taken away, you obviously had ambitions, you had goals, and you've also said you're a very visual person. So I'm sure you were thinking, me and Gussie were owning to go away, piss and rain. It's going to be brilliant. Can't wait. Mm. And all of that is just stripped away. So in those few minutes, few hours, whatever it could have been, did you completely have to recalibrate, reset your whole mental approach to the challenge? Or how did that process kind of evolve
1: so it was a few stages to it, it was a bit like a, a nearly um, uh, grieving um, uh, process. So the initial stage was, um, well, at least it was, it was, I can't say disbelief, but it, it, he had been really struggling, you know. So I never thought, of course, that he you know, was going to get to a point where um, – Uh, it got to where he was going to have to be evacuated and and like in a state of such exhaustion that he couldn't go on but um, it's not there was kind of inklings that like geez this guy's under a lot a lot a lot of stress and it doesn't seem to be going away so it it wasn't exactly a surprise then there was great heartache like um, kind of what you touched on there around you know we put kind of two and a half years into this together. Um, we'd worked really hard to make it happen. We trained hard together. And now, you know, all that imagery that was a big driver for us that we had actually discussed um, openly around, you know, what it would look like and what it would feel <clears throat> like rowing into Galway and the kind of impact that dash could possibly have on uh, anyone watching you know that was all gone and I had never you know when you talk of in terms of like visualization and be that natural just whatever pictures comes up for you in your mind or you know deliberately concentrated and focused on you know I had never, ever once seen this as a kind of uh, solo, solitary endeavor. It was always the two of us in those pictures. So I was really sad, you know, to uh, know that that wasn't going to happen and, and that wasn't going to happen for him. Um, it was um, it was heartbreaking because he had put – it meant so much to him, you know. Um, and then I became quite cold, Uh well, once, sorry, once that, like, over the course of a number of hours and the decision was made to uh, evacuate him, and we were kind of waiting on what that process might look like. Originally, they were talking about a helicopter and then they diverted, a, the U.S. Coast Guard ended up diverting a tanker that was on its way to New York to come by. So over the course of that, then I had time, like, to kind of, I suppose, contemplate what uh, what was ahead for me, and, and that was... Um, very daunting um, the thought of having we only rode 500 miles at this point it had been it had been hard work to say the least uh, and now I had another two and a half thousand ahead and as you said the boat was now only going to go possibly you know in the region of 10, 11, 12, 13 hours a day forward and the other time it was just going to be at its the mercy of the elements you know so Knowing what the North Atlantic does in terms of weather, um, that was extremely daunting, you know. So my my kind of coldness came in terms of I need to get this guy off the boat. He needs to go now because, because I need to... So I'm I'm in a fearful state, and anytime you're in a fearful state, your mind can start making up all these like stories that are absolutely unhelpful and destructive in the um in the grand scheme of what you're trying to do. So I was I'm aware of that. You know, I've lived in that state many many times, and my strategy is approach, get in, get rid of the unknown because it's the unknown that's creating the fear. So to get rid of the unknown, I need to I needed to get into the rowing and I needed to kind of experience what this was going to be like like you know in terms of maybe going forward and going backwards and and just get going right I've got one thing to do and it's row the Atlantic and how do I do that I have to row so so it became quite cold um and then he got off uh I I first day I was grand like first 24 hours uh I just I rode and rode and I just put the head down, with very, very good condition. So that helped a lot. But then I kind of had a, a kind of hangover, if you want, from the experience kind of come in. And I found the next kind of four or five days to the end of that third week, um, very challenging emotionally. It was just kind of low, really kind of, um, yeah, just down, um, kind of processing that, um that he was gone and um yeah and, and I kinda of eventually came out the other side of that at the end of week three. So the nineteen and twenty. It didn't help that the that the end of that week the conditions were really, really challenging, like they call it a kind of mixed sea. So you have wind from one direction, waves from a different direction. Um and uh it's just very hard to row the boat and get any sort of progress um in like never never get a smooth stroke you know it's always um bobbing and weaving on the kind of the different elements you know so add that into the emotional hangover from losing go it was, it was a tough few days but uh, uh eventually kind of processed it and <clears throat> um and rocked on
0: yeah I, I can only kind of anticipate how tough that would have been and the as you described there the emotional roller coaster one goes through when <laughs> their partner in crime has to be taken off obviously for health reasons but then as you said like you were nearly this is just kind of been the warm up uh, at this stage and you still had a huge challenge in front of you and like for people as well who are not aware like you're you you can't swim for instance which i find it's absolutely bizarre but I suppose face your fears etc etc but you have that you have the fact that now you're on your own I know there is support structures in place but it's not like you're in a five-star luxury hotel and you can click your fingers and you get service given to you straight away far from it as you said your mm. your best friend is nature which is about as reliable as a I don't know an Irish weather forecast for the week but as you go throughout these days and the challenges where maybe you don't even progress closer to go away, the wind or the weather takes its course. How are like how ranging were your like emotions at times? Because like say ten, twenty days after Gussie has left you, you're firmly yourself you're firmly kind of accustomed to what challenges ahead of you like was there much fluctuations when there was maybe a terrible day and you made no progress got blown back uh, compared to maybe a day where it's completely calm you're seeing dolphins in the ocean everything seems glorious like did did your mind then fluctuate with those experiences or was it quite level-headed trout Oh, there was lots
1: of downs, like, moments of, like, demoralization, de dispiriting, you know, like, and it all came from getting, basically getting blown backwards, like, going back. Every time I dropped the oars, I'd go backwards. There was one particularly uh, memorable for the wrong reasons, Um, day where I was, I rode for, two hours straight into these winds like no it's like determined to just fucking be like kind of aggressive and uh and work and control my state so two hours rowing hard rowing I made 0.6 of a nautical mile you know there's other days where you'd make eight miles right so I made 0.6 of a mile and then I I I dropped the oars because I mean there's parts of that two hours where all you want to do is drop the oars and rest and I'd given myself a two hour window so I got it done dropped the oars 15 minutes later and gone back 0.3 of the (laughs) 0.6 and then half an hour later I'd gone back 0.8 so I'd lost everything I made in that two hours plus another 0.2 but the time I got back on the oars uh, after an hour's rest I'd I'd gone backwards 1.3 miles you know, and that was not irregular. In fact, that was especially in the second half of the expedition. So the first half took 44 days, the first, like, 1,300 miles, and the next 1,300 miles took 68 days. So that second half was just brutal, like, emotionally, just absolutely fucking brutal, like, just where there was moments of despair, absolute despair, where particularly... um between 500 and 400 nautical miles so that's 100 nautical miles right clearly sorry and um that should take about two and a half days and like an average day on the ocean um not good conditions not bad conditions just bang average you're talking you roughly row 40 miles in and around so i'm thinking i get to 500 nautical miles big milestone you know next one okay, take a bit of time, enjoy that, celebrate that. Next 400 nautical miles. So, I'm thinking two and a half, three days. It took me 13 days to row that 100 nautical miles. <laughs> 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 I'm rowing 11 hours a day at that point, uh, maybe 11 and a half. And um, there's one day I made two miles with 11 and a half hours work, another day I made four, another day I made seven, another day I made eight. That, that that stretch particularly was absolutely crushing, like soul-destroying. I, I, I genuinely felt I am forsaken for the rest of my life to just be in this fucking section of the ocean. Like I just can't, it's like a wall of water, I call it. I just couldn't get any sort of progress. So like, no matter how um, how many tools you have at your disposal at disposal uh, mentally and physically that's gonna fucking eat you up and spit you out you know it's just gonna like it's just gonna crush you like so um yeah there was definitely i there's one video i made at the time because because i was i was recording for a documentary and i was also kind of doing bits and pieces for social media uh and I say I'm swinging between despair and concentration. Like so, the despair obviously I mentioned, and then the the kind of foil to that, the tool to work against that was concentrating on what's within my control and trying to direct all my um, my mental concentration and physical concentration um, onto those acts, you know, and uh, what what would help me kind of control my mind then because they would. You know, bring me to the present moment. And when I'm present, I can't be stressed or anxious or th- in moments of despair. So, yeah, it was just this battle internally, kind of just getting knocked down constantly and having to pick yourself up and redirect your mind to something within your control and try at least to stay in that state of uh, concentrated um, focus for as long as you can. You're going to come out of it at some point, you know, uh, and then it's just about redirecting and redirecting. So, yeah. Anyway, clearly, I you know I uh, got past that point, but that that particularly that that section and that particularly that second half of the of the expedition was just off the charts. You know, like um, I got a lot of energy from um, my behavior out there. So, like, despite these incredible challenges of going backwards time and time again. It was been able to live my values, you know, so to be honest with myself, to be disciplined in those moments. And the days where I was like incredibly disciplined, like where where if I have to be up at half three in the morning, just before the um, dawn breaks to get the most out of the day and I get up And I'm out on deck at the exact time I want myself. And I work throughout the day to that, you know, 11 and a half hours to the quality I want and to the standards I want. Um, That's where I get energy. Like, that's what feels good. Like Okay, a, a pod of dolphins and a really nice sunset. They give you something, right? But, like, it's this kind of little peak of positive emotion. But it's gone, like, quickly. Whereas the other thing, you know, like living your values embodying your values throughout those throughout that stress and those moments of difficulty emotionally taxing heavy um that's just this deep kind of fire that kind of you know is constantly fueled throughout that and that's what kept me going
0: yeah like kind of having processes in place that you can you can hold yourself in a high standard too and just one of the last things i want to ask you about in relation to the row and before i let you go is obviously the moment of visualization where you actually reach galway and i know there was maybe a bit of a hiccup because the storm was quite bad so yeah. you ended up crashing into the rocks which is something yeah. you'd see nearly in a a Monty python or a a comedy <laughs> film but when you, you reached the dock, I'm sure you, you painted a few pictures of what it would look like, but that moment there where all the locals, your family, your friends, complete strangers, they're there to greet you and welcome welcome you back home. Like, How do you describe that? Because as, say, a former rugby player, you've got plenty of highs and lows. A lot of people always say the lows outweigh the highs of the highs, but in terms of gratification, happiness, all those buzzwords, like what were your emotions at that time? Or could you even go on record and say, bar maybe family-related matters, that was like the best experience of your life or best feeling of your life? I wish I could say that. Um, <laughs> uh, the reality is
1: it, it wasn't. Um I was like the night before so i i landed on the rocks in Furbo, which is about 7 miles from galway um uh at 1am uh and then i i got into the docks at 11am that morning right so there's a there's a bit of a story between that but uh 1am uh i i i as far as i was concerned i failed um, at that time when I hit the rocks I just fucking couldn't believe I'd come so far mm-hmm. and this is the way it had ended you know uh, I was I was fucking gutted I was gutted for a few different reasons obviously that's not how I wanted to finish and secondly the my like Kushla McCree my boat was getting the shit kicked out of her like literally as I didn't know at the time um, but I assumed that that was her end like she was going to be there all night and she was tide was coming in and it was, um, she was, uh, she was just going to get battered and destroyed. And I, you know, and, and, and that's the way it ended for her. And there was quite an emotional attachment. So that that was sad. Um, and then the next day, uh, like, so I went home and I, I got home eventually to my parents' house and uh my partner Roselle was here and our little one so they'd just flown in from Australia. So, you know, that they were the people I wanted to see more than anyone. And so that was beautiful that we got to spend like two and a half hours together that night and then it crashed around five AM and then it was up the next morning, and that was the first my parents knew of it that I was in the house. Like when um, <laughs> <laughs> I came downstairs, I are like, What the Tip fuck? Them, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and then it was kind of like, What do we do? you know, so um <clears throat> there was this big thing planned for the docks at eleven a.m. when I should have been rowing in. Uh and I was like, I didn't really know what to do because I was still like, you know, okay, there I am still disappointed with the way it finished. Um, but there had been nice moments between that and every now and then I was kinda of, everyone was around and everyone was saying, you know, I, I and, and the 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 thing here was I wasn't really seeing straight because of how emotionally I attached I was obviously to the outcome um, of row, rowing into Galway um, on Kushla after that kind of battle and how that. Vision and imagery had fed me so long and got me through such, you know, hard times, and uh, so I had conversations with a few people, particularly Mac Dara Hosty, who was kind of the co-manager of the project, if you want to, myself, and um, and you know he he made me see clearly like that, you know, the people were coming not to see you rowing in, even though there was a bit of that, they were coming to see you, um, they had you know become uh attached to the uh, expedition through the social media through the podcast through everything i had um put out there during it and um they're not gonna care if you come in on a they prefer, I'm sure, for everyone, maybe myself as well, if I grow in, but that's not clearly going to happen. And you know, there was a press release out there and everyone was aware at that point. So um yeah, he just couldn't, you know, he's he gave me a few different options and the one I felt was the kind of most I was most comfortable with, even though I wasn't very comfortable, was just to come in on a rib, you know, go out. Maybe like a couple of hundred meters, um, and then come in on a on the back of her rib. So, you know that that was what was that? I mean, it was a bit. I I would prefer to rode in <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Uh, it was nice, like it was it was. Um, so I'm very glad I did that. Came on, came in on the rib because, you know, that picture what I saw and those people like that's a life experience i'm very glad i had and the imageries of that sort are the images of that the videos of that when i see them now like they nearly kind of grow more they have more impact now than they did back then if you get me because yeah. i mean i was in a, a kind of quite a it was quite a it was, uh, churning kind of all sorts of emotions inside me, and I wasn't particularly connected. So, you know, I, I was just kind of there and, and kind of getting through it and trying to be, you know, friendly and trying to be polite. But I'm still underneath that all, massively regretting what had happened, how it had finished. So, but now, You know, I see clear, like, I can see those images. I see the people's faces and how much it meant to them and the kids um, and, uh, like, I didn't see it that day and now I can. And every time I see it, it hits me. I'm like, Jesus, you know, you, you made a big impact on people. Like people came to Galway. they didn't bring their kids to school. They drove from all sorts of corners of the country. They didn't go to work on a Tuesday morning in October to come welcome you in, you know? And uh, so I, I see it now much more, um, positively. And, uh, I'm so glad I did it and it'll, those images I think are only going to mean more and more to me
0: um, as the years pass yeah and as, as time ticks on and just the last question I want to let, ask you now Damien before just a few quick fire questions and I can let you enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon no is you even mentioned it there as, as time goes on you look back at all these moments and you know have different kind of responses to pictures and experiences, but you you strike me as the type of guy that would rather have more time than, say, more money. You'd rather, you know, be able to do more things rather than just be given a wad of cash and go, name your adventure. You can do it right here, right now. But a lot of the things you do, whether it's the Sahara or these roads, I know there's safety mechanisms in place or even your climb of Everest that was thwarted, uh, thwarted due to COVID. A lot of these things you are somewhat, or in some people's eyes, are based even on the facts you were flirting with, you know, harm, with death, potential death and I've I've spoken to a few people and heard a few people who would do these tough things that would really push the body uh, deal with nature where it's completely out of your hands, as you alluded to at certain stages. There, do you, as a adventurer, need to like? Do you need to develop uh, respect? for death do you are you comfortable with the idea behind it or are you very much a person that goes that's not even entering the conversation i'm just focusing on whatever the challenges is ahead. as an adventure not really um my whole outlook
1: would be um uh risk um risk assessment and risk uh, management so like i know to people oh he's run across the north atlantic he can't swim and he's on his own. I mean, for that, to most people, that's 10 out of 10 risk. For me, it's not. It's, I would say, two and a half, three out of 10. Um, because I know, like, all the scenarios. As far as I'm concerned, I have kind of ran through and... Um, down to the finest detail, put in place processes for whatever scenario can come up. Um, or, you know, I have processes in place that never kind of get me to a point where a certain scenario will come in. Uh, and I'm highly trained to deal with all these things physically and mentally. So um, so the risk isn't that much on the Atlantic. Actually, you know, of everything I've done, the, the risk, the one I found... Most kind of um, disconcerting in the amount of risk is mountaineering. Because mountaineering, there's an element of uh, luck or uh, unlucky um, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, like avalanches can happen at any time. Um, Now there is very skilled people who can, um, you know, who can uh, survey these risks and make really good decisions around it. So it's very important that you surround yourself with them. But at the same time, you know, you're going through the Cumbu Icefall uh, on Everest and every year, something happens in there and it happens to some of the best Sherpa in the world sometimes. So you can just be very unlucky. And I remember um, lying in my tent at base camp and I was in an emotionally bad place, like very challenging. I was sick. I had COVID. I had left a five-day-old baby at home to kind of come and do this. So I was rocked emotionally. And I remember listening to the um, avalanches just going, fuck me, Pink, you know that you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, it was very, it wasn't helping the challenge I was going through. Yeah. So, yeah, so mountaineering is definitely one where, you know, there is there is um, a unknown risk um, and that is not something I'm particularly comfortable with. Um, I don't see myself spending a lot of time on mountains uh, throughout my life. I, I love the challenge of them. But because of that, I, you know, there's also a, an awareness around, well, the more time you're there, the more risk, you know, the more time you spend on them, the higher the risk. Like, so I want to try and get if and when I do, you know, firstly, make all the right decisions, surround myself with the best people who have more knowledge than me and and, um, and are, you know, led by the right um, intentions and then not fuck around and not be there too long because it's just dangerous through the roof. Um but as a person, I, uh, you know, that's the adventurer side. But as a person, I do um, contemplate death because I feel there is great uh, energy that can be gained by um, by contemplating that clearly negative <laughs> um, yeah. experience. Uh, but it's coming for us all, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we've
1: got we've got this short window of time before it comes. And we got to try and make the most of it. We've got to try and do what's important to us, what's meaningful to us, what's authentic to us. And it's so easy not to do that stuff. It's so easy to be led by, you know, societal kind of norms and conditioning and family uh, perceptions or family outlooks or communities that may well not serve what's, you know, deeply uh meaningful to you um so why you know i think it's a good thing to think about um debt um, whenever you know it doesn't have to be regularly of course some people have practices around that but i think it's a good thing to be very have a very healthy kind of awareness around that it's coming and it may well be quicker than um you think uh <laughs> you know we hear these horror stories all the time <coughs> about you don't have to look too far from a horror story of people's lives been cut very, very short and life been very, very cruel. So um, you just never know. That could be you. And the day it comes, you want to fucking be in a place where you go, Do you know what? Well, I tried my fucking hardest uh, and I gave it a go and I lived life to the best of my ability and I went after things that are important to me. And uh, and if today is my day, well, so be it.
0: Yeah. Well said. Well, hopefully that day is way further down the line than we hope. But as you said, you never, never know. Yeah. yeah, So, Damien, how I finish these podcasts is I just roll off a few quick fire questions. And yeah, whatever pops into your head first and foremost, you can respond. And some of them are obviously themed towards your your row and stuff. A few few of my followers wanted to ask a few questions, but mostly quick fire. Cool. And yeah, then I can let you go. So no I will get cracking. So on the road, the latest road, did you keep a personal diary or journal? No, I just did a kind
1: of podcast and a little audio, or sorry, visual video clips as well. So uh, it was I, at that that in itself was enough. It was hard. Yeah. It was hard
0: even to do that. Imagine, yeah. As a podcaster, I know the trials and tribulations of having the energy <laughs> to do it every day. But, right. Uh, what is your favorite film of all time? Forrest Gump. Uh, do you plan on going back to Mount Everest? Yes. Okay. And what phobias do you have? Like an example, I have two. I hate flying and I hate spiders. So. Um, rats
1: oh, <laughs> Jesus I often thought about like doing one of those jungle marathons and then I was like Geez, you know they have rats the size of fucking cats in those places <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
0: yeah Damien Brown quits marathon after encountering <laughs> yeah. a, a Jesus sized <laughs> rat <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, what is worse hoovering the house changing your bed sheets or emptying the dishwasher oh the bed sheets pain in the ass. <laughs> everyone ever seems to say that and i completely agree i just think it's mostly men that it's just yeah. like it's just some sort of hexagon paradox that we just cannot <laughs> we just cannot yeah. uh, do them while well, every female Lord. i've ever met can do it in about 1.8 seconds <laughs> yes. and just lastly from me if so you've you've obviously heard what i've got to say but if You could ask yourself one question today that I haven't. What would you ask yourself? Could even be a personal one. It doesn't have to necessarily be from my perspective. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, the first thing I'll say is uh, great questions. Um, I think I've. I don't know. So I, lots of people um, invite me onto podcasts and. Um, often it's the same, you know, the same questions, which is fine. You know, I mean, I think there's good interest in them and themselves, but I I, I feel that you put um, a lot of time into considering those questions and obviously kind of went the step or two or three deeper in some places, which I appreciate because I think that's where the essence of these things really lies, you know, trying to get into those kind of details. In terms of what you didn't ask, I don't know. Don't know i'm uh I'm not somebody like who you know when I do like talk sometimes they're fireside, fireside chats and they always wanna send me the questions and I'm like I don't wanna see the questions, yeah, I just want to be present and try and have the um I try and be in a state of mind where I am like centered and authentic and coming from the heart with my answers and anytime I read a question before that I'm like it, it kind of nearly puts me off been in that state which I feel is a kind of takes away from the conversation and the people listening to it so I prefer not to know so th- why I'm saying that is that means I don't actually go around thinking, geez, I wish they'd asked me that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't have <laughs> questions in my mind. So I, I don't have an answer for you. Uh there's nothing popping up. I'm I'm gone a bit blank, I'm afraid. That's fair.
0: That's fair. Yeah. Well, Damien, that wraps it up. Um I will leave a link to your website and your Instagram page if anyone is intrigued to see what comes next. But if there's anything you wanna say, whether it's about, you know, your short term future or anything for people to keep an eye on uh, the floor is yours uh,
1: yeah so this year has um I have no I've come off the back of two big well really three big kind of preparation periods because Everest twice first one was uh, curtailed by COVID in 2020 and then 2021 and now the the North Atlantic Row so I don't have any big adventures planned this year so my big challenge this year is to write a book Um, so I'm kind of in the very very kind of start of that process now but hopefully I can get something out and done and yeah and and then I'll be kind of uh, there's a few other things happening um, climbing Kilimanjaro which uh, guiding people up Kilimanjaro so if anybody wants to join me there's still a few places left (laughs) Um, but uh, that's that's kind of it and uh, yeah as
0: you said uh, best places social media to kind of keep in touch and all that sort of stuff super well I'll link all that but listen I want to thank you for getting this done I know it's been a few weeks in the making but looking forward to what comes next and sure, whatever rest you have over the next few weeks I'm pretty sure you've earned it Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Great conversation.